If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hello, and welcome to Life of the Week, where leading historians delve into the lives of some of history's most intriguing and significant figures. From ancient Egyptian pharaohs and medieval warriors to daring 20th century spies. King Harold II is most famous for getting an arrow to the eye at the Battle of Hastings. But is that story even true? And what else should we know about the man whose main claim to fame is being defeated by William the Conqueror? In today's Life of the Week episode, David Musgrove explores the life of the king commonly known as Harold Godwinson with Caitlin Ellis, Associate Professor in Medieval History at Oslo University. So today on the History Extra Life of the Week series, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Caitlin Ellis and we are going to be talking about... King Harold II, a very notable figure in English history, certainly, and perhaps wider British, maybe even global history. So let's kick off. Caitlin, who was Harold Godwinson? So Harold Godwinson becomes uh, King of England in 1066 and sort of then famously dies at the Battle of Hastings later that year. So he's only been king for maybe 40 weeks. So he loses to the forces of William the Conqueror. So that kind of marks the start of the Norman Conquest. And I suppose 1066 is supposedly the date that all English schoolboys used to know. <laughs> 1066 and all that. He's probably born in the early 1020s. We're not quite sure precisely when. And he's from a noble family in England. So his father, Godwin, he was originally from kind of a more minor kind of English family. You know, they weren't nobodies, but they weren't necessarily kind of the top dogs, as it were. But Godwin has a very kind of rapid rise under Canute. So kind of after the Danish conquest, there's a bit of a kind of shake-up, you know, of sort of personnel and who has power and who's got trusted by the king. So it was basically Godwin had kind of backed the winning side. So he did well out of these changes and events that were happening Harold's mother is actually Danish. She's called Gifa. She's also from a noble Danish family. And her brother, who's called Ulf, he's married to Sven Forkbeard's daughter, to Estrid, so a sister of Canute. So he does actually kind of then have a tie by marriage, at least, of some form of kinship to the Anglo-Danish kind of ruling dynasty. 
So I just, you know, when we, we often end up talking about the different contenders for the throne in 1066, an Englishman, a Norman and a Scandinavian, but I suppose technically Harold is a bit Scandinavian himself as well. You know, he's, he's half Danish. And one of the sources says that his sister is able to kind of speak Danish or Norse. So maybe he can as well. Very helpful summation of the situation. You talked about Canute and the Anglo-Danish dynasties that were around. So just to be clear, we're talking about 1016 there with Canute. But just briefly, what happened there? What's the story of Canute? Where does he come involved? Canute is initially invading with Sven Forkbeard, with his father, who's the Danish king. So yeah, slightly kind of drawn out invasion, actually, especially in comparison to 1066. So, you know, there's been lots of raids from Scandinavia on England, sort of some attrition over a few years, but it seems like eventually they decide they're actually going to just try and make a play for the throne. So it's just on the basis of conquest, not really of any particular actual claim to the throne to succeed. But yes, Sven dies and then Canute becomes King of England in 1016. And, you know, he's then ruling England and shortly after Denmark as well. So that's quite a new situation at that point to be ruling both places. But yeah, Canute obviously brings in a lot of his own people and sort of more Scandinavians. So yeah, there's a bit of a shake-up maybe of the sort of society at the time. Brilliant. And so our Harold, young Harold, he's born some point in the 1020s. We don't, as you said, know exactly when. There's no handy birth certificate at that period. His father is a notable figure. Earl Godwin, as you said, a kind of a kingmaker figure. What roles does Harold fulfil in his early years? Does he get lots of titles as well? Yeah, so he becomes the Earl of East Anglia and then later of Wessex. I guess Wessex in particular is sort of a particularly kind of powerful prized earldom. So he only gets that after the death of his father. So he replaces his father, he replaces Godwin as the Earl of Wessex. This was Wessex having been the lands of the ruling dynasty of the House of Wessex, you know, back to Alfred's time. So that's sort of particularly sought after maybe and just quite a large earldom too. And then yeah, obviously he becomes King of England after the death of Edward in 1066. Okay, so there's a, an interesting trajectory there, but let's just backtrack a bit. So we've talked about his father, his mother and her Danish connections. Who were the other key people in Harold's life, would you say? Yeah, I mean, he's got several brothers that we know about. So actually, he's not actually the eldest, which I guess we often maybe forget the eldest son of Godwin and Giva. The eldest son gets exiled for abducting an abbess and kind of trying to maybe like marry her without the king's permission. So that involves him being exiled once for that. And then the whole family is exiled later on because of these conflicts with Edward the Confessor. So he just kind of ends up staying on the continent, whereas the others are kind of taken back which is something that historians are very interested in as to does Edward just have to take them back? Are they just so powerful that he has no choice and that shows that Edward is a bit weak? Or is it just sort of a political play? So it slightly depends on how we view Edward as a king as well. But that kind of leaves Harold as the heir apparent, as the oldest viable male in the family. Yes, then he has more brothers. He has uh, Leofwine and Gurf, who seem to support him. So they're there at Hastings as well. So they're killed alongside him. And then maybe the more interesting or sort of complicated example is his other brother, Tosti, who ends up betraying him. But maybe we'll come back to that later in the story. But I suppose basically just the point being that this is a powerful family and kind of between all of the brothers, they have a lot of titles and a lot of earldoms. So they actually just cover quite a large swathe of England under their control at this point. So you've talked a little bit about the relationship between the Godwin family and Edward the Confessor. Who was Edward the Confessor and when did he come to the throne? Edward the Confessor is a son of Ethelred the Unready, so sort of having to think back to the Danish conquest, the king who was ousted 
then. So he is from this long-standing line of the kings of England, of the West Saxons. So his claim by blood is obviously a lot better. But because of this sort of Danish conquest, Edward had grown up in exile in Normandy. So it sort of seems that when he's taken back to England, or sort of taken back as king in 1042, after Canute's death, he has a couple of sons, but then there's sort of tensions between them and it, it all gets a bit messy, you know, and factional. But that sort of allows Edward to come back but it seems that maybe he's still viewed as being a bit foreign, you know, because he hasn't grown up there. And he obviously has all his sort of Norman friends and supporters and he sort of brings some of them with him to England. It's understandable, I suppose, that he will want people that he trusts with him. But that also then creates a bit of tension between the sort of new people in his circle and then the kind of existing powerful lords who were already there. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Okay, so we might talk about perhaps Edward the Confessor and his sort of Norman faction and maybe the English faction perhaps under the Godwins. Would that be a fair way of of talking about things? Yeah, definitely. So in the early 1050s, Harold's father Godwin dies. And so Harold then becomes the leading noble in the Godwin family. At that point, Edward the Confessor is on the throne. He's the King of England. The story goes on up to 1066 when the Battle of Hastings happens. So what's happening between the early 1050s and 1066 with Harold? What sort of things is he doing and does he have much of a relationship with the king? So it seems like Harold is actually kind of gaining a lot of military experience, which should hopefully stand him in good stead for later. He's kind of building his power, trying to kind of gain more land and titles as well. He's quite active fighting against the Welsh. So I suppose maybe that's something that's quite useful for Edward the Confessor in a way, as you can kind of like keep him occupied <laughs> and sort of hope that he'll kind of protect the border a bit and maybe not be too close and sort of breathing down Edward's neck, as it were. So he particularly fights against a Welsh king called Griffith Ap Llywelyn, who can kind of claim to be sort of king of Wales. And he's allied with the Earls of Mercia and with Alfgar. So then we get some tension between, obviously, between Harold and Alfgar as representative of two sort of powerful English families. So yeah, there's lots of raids and sort of warfare back and forth. And that, I guess, kind of culminates in 1063. The sort of seems that Harold is able to kind of put an end to some of this resistance for a while. And one version of the Chronicle actually says that it's the Welsh people themselves who bring Harold, the head of Griffith Ab Llywelyn, and he's sort of able to appoint another king there. So that's obviously quite a powerful symbol um, of sort of Welsh subjugation, actually, at that point, you know, that he has the king's head and then is able to present it to Edward the Confessor in turn as well. So he's proved himself as a pretty vigorous, you know, successful military character during this period. So can we talk very briefly about the women in Harold's life? So his sister is an interesting story. She's actually married to King Edward the Confessor. Is that right? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. So she's called Edith. And as you say, it's probably quite a big coup in a way for the family that she is married to the king. And it's maybe is also useful for him as well, sort of maybe being seen as slightly foreign and not having kind of grown up in England. 
to have that connection. Edith is sort of really interesting for us because she commissions the Vita Edwardi Regis, the life of Edward the Confessor. So, you know, we don't necessarily have that many examples from the medieval period of texts that are kind of commissioned by women. So, you know, even though it's about mostly about her husband, it also talks quite a bit about her own family as well. That's sort of just really interesting that we have that in general, I suppose. And then Harold seems to have a sort of first wife, although some people just sort of call her a concubine or sort of say maybe it wasn't like as official a marriage, but he seems to have lots of children with her. She's also called Edith, confusingly, <laughs> sort of Edith the Fair, or sometimes people call her Swan Neck, I think that's a slight misunderstanding of the epithet or nickname that she has. And then he also ends up marrying the Eyaldgif, who's the daughter of Alfgar of Mercia. So again, someone that he'd had a kind of like troubled relationship with. That's again probably quite a kind of a, a tactical marriage to show that he's won maybe slightly in that dispute. Okay, we've taken the story up towards the crucial year, 1066, the big year in Harold's life. And that's obviously when he takes the throne and then has to have a fight with William the Conqueror. We'll get to that in a second. What was Harold's claim to the throne. So Harold's claim to the throne isn't necessarily the best one, kind of by strict rules of succession. As we've said, his sister is married to the king, so he's got some connection there, but you know, it's not he's not a blood relative or descendant of the king in that sense. But because Edward is childless, there is this sort of potential kind of power vacuum as it were. So really, it seems like his claim is kind of based on his standing or sort of the standing of his family as a whole. As we've said, maybe he's seen as a bit of a safe pair of hands because of all this sort of experience that he has. The text that I mentioned that his sister sort of commissioned later, sort of written in her honour about Edward, that claims that Edward did entrust Harold with the kingdom kind of on his deathbed, you know, with his dying words. And that's something that even the medieval sources sort of disagree about at the time and something that, you know, historians continue to debate about, do we really think that that happened? Did Harold sort of lean over the dying Edward and then come out and say, yeah, he totally said that I would be the next king? <laughs> it's obviously difficult to know for certain there. And there is a, another surviving a blood descendant of the House of Wessex. There is Edgar Affling, so Affling kind of meaning someone who, who could succeed a sort of a prince. So he's the grandson of Edmund Ironside, so the great-grandson of Ethelred the Unready, so kind of going, going further back a little bit in the story, to before the Danish conquest. So it's possible that Edward's previous plan had sort of been for him to succeed, or that even that was what he continued to hope. Again, I say there's, there's debate about that. But Edgar is quite young at this point. He's maybe in his mid-teens, and he only kind of reached England, came back from sort of exile, having been born in Hungary in sort of around 1057. So maybe he just doesn't have enough support or maybe people are kind of worried that there are going to be these attempted invasions. So, you know, you, you want to have, have someone maybe a little bit older, a little bit more experienced to rule. So at the start of 1066 then, we've got Harold as the most practical contender, I suppose. You've just talked about Edgar and perhaps he's too young. Edward the Confessor passes away. And as you said, Edward the Confessor was childless, so somebody had to take over. When was Harold crowned king? Have we got a precise date for that? So it seems to be very quickly, just a, a couple of days after Edward dies. So maybe there is that sense that they kind of need to act quite swiftly and create a sense of order, you know, if there are kind of questions over the succession. We also think that it might have happened in Westminster Abbey. So that might have been one of the first coronations of a king of, of the English there. So say, yeah, maybe a kind of understandable that they want to act quite quickly. So the Witan, the sort of assembly of, of the sort of important Englishmen, do seem to choose Harold, as we said, as maybe just the, the most sensible candidate at that point. So do we know how much support to be king 
he actually had before and, and after his coronation. You mentioned the Witten there sort of choosing him. Can we assess how popular a choice he was? Yeah, as I said, it seems like even sort of in the years preceding, there seemed to be quite a lot of support for the Godwins and they obviously maybe had some enemies, I suppose, as any powerful people you're liable to make some enemies. But yes, yeah, the fact that he's got his brothers there as well, he's got Leo Fine and Gurf, and they have got extensive earldoms of their own. So as I said, sort of between them, they cover quite a lot of land. And a lot of these nobles then do end up backing Edgar Affling's claim after the Norman Conquest, so after Harold's death. So there maybe is some support for him at the time. I suppose maybe the main issue for Harold is that the sort of the troublesome brothers, as it were, that we that we mentioned earlier, that Tosti has been exiled as kind of Earl of Northumbria, and he's maybe kind of seeking revenge slightly against Harold because Harold sort of slightly agreed to this. So it seems like Tosti wasn't so popular with the Northumbrians. Maybe he kind of acted quite harshly. So he kind of gets ousted by the sort of the locals. And they send for Morcar, for the the younger brother of Edwin, who's the Earl of Mercia. So Harold is kind of sent potentially by Edward to kind of go and try and like negotiate with the rebels and try and sort of sort out a solution. But it seems like he just decides that actually they maybe just need to agree to what the rebels want, which yeah probably doesn't make his brother very happy. But <laughs> so let's move on to the sort of the turbulent events of 1066. There's more than one battle. We've got the battle facing, but we've also got a couple of things that happened before that. Would you be able to just sort of sketch out the story a little bit? Sure, yep. So, so as we say, Tosti is unhappy. He's been exiled. It seems that he then goes to Harald Hardrada, the king of Norway, and either encourages Harold to invade, or maybe Harold was always going to invade and Tosti just kind of goes along for the ride. But it's sort of certainly they're then kind of acting, acting together. So the two of them are involved in this Norwegian invasion attempt, which obviously is ultimately kind of unsuccessful. So Harold and Tosti are both killed in the Battle of Stamford Bridge. They'd had an earlier victory against some of the Norman lords in York, Battle of Fulford. So maybe by the time we get to Stamford Bridge, their forces are a little bit tired, but it also seems like Harold is able to take them by surprise by sort of marching quite quickly from London to the north. So sort of quite a good kind of strategic victory there for Harold. Okay, so King Harold, Harold II, our man has defeated and killed Harold Hardrada, the Norwegian, but he's up in the north and then we get to the most famous point in Harold's life, the Battle of Hastings, where he has to contend with Duke William of Normandy. Did he have to fight at Hastings? Why did he have to fight that battle? Mm. I mean, I suppose he always presumably would have had to fight at some point unless he'd suddenly decided that, that William could be king or something like that. Obviously, William claims that Harold had previously sworn allegiance to him and William's sort of claim is kind of via Edward's Norman connections. I guess William's invasion force had also been sort of delayed, kind of supposedly by the sort of the unfavourable winds. But yeah, he's kind of crossed the channel and he's been kind of establishing himself and kind of fortifying sort of Hastings. But I suppose you can see the logic from Howard's point of view that kind of the longer you leave it, maybe the more William would be able to sort of entrench himself, sort of build a bit of a base. William had also been kind of laying waste to the countryside kind of in the area. So some of that might just be kind of practical that, you know, you, you need food for all of your men, you know, you need to kind of resupply a bit but it might also be a little bit of a tactic as well a bit of a show of strength to show power and maybe also provoke a bit of a response by sort of taking women and children and it is an area that Harold's family have got a kind of quite a long-standing connection to with the sort of heartland 
in Sussex. So we could maybe see that Harold might be kind of particularly displeased at everything that's going on. So, yeah, in, in some ways, we maybe sort of think, you know, he acted too quickly and he sort of should have let his forces kind of recover after Stamford Bridge, kind of rather than just marching straight down. Um, I think there's only maybe like 19 days between the two battles. But yeah, I suppose to be fair to him, you can also see that maybe he thought he should just try and like deal with this swiftly and not let it drag on. So do you think that Harold actually had much chance of winning the Battle of Hastings? <laughs> the eternal question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I say, obviously we can sort of see that maybe he's at a disadvantage having just already had this battle. And as I say, actually, because they'd been Fulford as well, <laughs> you know, there'd been sort of two battles prior to this. So, you know, obviously he would have lost soldiers and people had died or would have been injured. So we can imagine they would be quite tired after this long march south. So that might put him at a disadvantage in that sense. But as we've said, he obviously has been quite an effective kind of military leader. He's quite experienced. So, you know, maybe he kind of hopes to sort of use the same sort of tactic that worked well Stamford Bridge with Harold Hardrada against William by sort of acting quickly and maybe taking him unawares a bit. But yeah, I mean, I suppose William obviously also has military experience too in Normandy. And the battle is still, we're told the battle is quite long, you know, that it lasts from the morning until dusk. So I guess it's not an easy victory so for the Normans either, even if, you know, ultimately we know what the outcome will be with the benefit of hindsight. The outcome of the battle is, of course, that, that William wins and Harold dies. Do we know how Harold actually dies? There's clearly the famous story of the arrow in the eye. Yes, exactly. So as you say, uh, listeners have probably heard the, the story about Harold being shot in the eye by an arrow. So some of the sources do say that, quite a few of them. There's also another sort of version of the story, particularly in a text called The Song on the Battle of Hastings, so quite a contemporary source. So that says that instead that Harold was attacked by four knights, so including William himself and some other kind of notable figures. And that he's basically just kind of like, it's a bit gruesome, he's kind of basically like hacked to pieces and one of them cut off his head. So there's sort of the two sort of rival versions to the story. That text might maybe be trying to glorify William and these other important Normans that, you know, they personally had a hand in defeating Harold and, you know, in hand-to-hand combat, I suppose, rather than it just being an arrow that happens to find the right target, as it were. And obviously people have tried to examine the Bayer tapestry where there is the famous image of a figure with an arrow in the eye. And, you know, people tried to work out if maybe the arrow could have been stitched in later and so on. But then there have also been people disagreeing about which figure is supposed to be Harold, you know, because obviously there were a few kind of figures represented in that scene. It's also been suggested that maybe that more than one figure is actually Harold and it's almost like two stages. So I guess that's also maybe an attempt to reconcile these different stories that maybe he could have been shot by an arrow. You'd think it would be fatal if it went through his eye and then hacked to pieces or just that that's kind of what happens to his body. They don't treat it very respectfully, as it were. And there are a few sources that say that Howard's body couldn't be very easily sort of identified afterwards. So there's a chronicle from Wolf, which is from the 12th century, but it sort of claims to be kind of drawing on kind of earlier sources. And that says that it was only Edith, the earlier wife or maybe concubine of Harold's, that there were marks that were kind of known only to her. So she's the one that's able to identify the body. But yeah, I guess you start then getting quite a few legends kind of built up around that whole story. 
Before we move on to his legacy, just one thing that we've probably maybe perhaps skipped over a little bit that we maybe should mention a little bit more, and it kind of also ties into any reflections you might have about what sort of a man he was, because you've alluded to this fact that William's case for invading was based on this idea that Harold had perjured himself and offered his support for William to be the king following Edward the Confessor. And then the Bayer Tapestry, it kind of famously has this journey of Harold going to Normandy and looking like he's swearing some sort of oath on holy relics. I wonder if you've got any reflections on that, and is it likely that Harold would have been a perjurer, do you think? What's your sense on what sort of a man he was? Yeah, I mean, I suppose he obviously doesn't get such a good write-up from the Norman sources, you know, because they're trying to justify William's conquest, you know, so they maybe need to come up with an excuse for kind of why, you know, one Christian realm is invading another Christian realm, you know, that you need a bit more of a pretext to do that. I mean, I suppose it's possible that if you are in an unfamiliar place and you're being held, that maybe you would just agree to anything for them to let you go. It's also, I suppose, possible that you can swear slightly vaguer sense that someone's your overlord, but kind of what does that actually mean in practice? So I suppose it's not uncommon for kings and rulers and sort of important figures to come up with kind of temporary cooperation and then for things to change based on the situation. So yeah, it is one of those, as you say, kind of eternal questions that people I'm sure will still be debating for years to come about what actually happened and which of the sources do we believe. As we say, we have maybe slightly one extreme or the other, you know, but then we've also got the life of Edward the Confessor is obviously a lot more positive about Harold and that whole family because it's being written for a member of that family. Well, that's a very interesting point though, isn't it? Because history is supposedly written by the victors generally, you know, that's what people say. Harold wasn't a victor, he lost, but there are some sources which are quite kind to him in the aftermath. What is your assessment of the way he's treated in the sources? And also, is it possible with the nature of these sources to kind of get any sense of the character of a person from the paucity of sources that you have this period? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose often for the medieval period, yeah, it's difficult to get a real sense of someone's personality. You know, you don't have sources from their own point of view, but I guess we can sort of see his his actions or his family's actions. And yeah, we definitely get a sense of them being potentially fairly like power hungry and sort of expansionist and maybe willing to to kind of challenge authority a little bit. As they say, there's there's been obviously this tension with Edward the Confessor quite frequently. So that's part of it. Yeah, the way that he deals with the Welsh, I suppose, yeah, he wouldn't be very popular amongst the Welsh, I'm sure. He sort of does seem to be fairly ruthless there. But as I say, maybe that's also what makes him potentially quite a good kind of military leader. But yeah, I suppose it's, it's maybe a little bit difficult to go back and find the man beneath all the legends that grow up around him and this idea of him being the last true English king. And, you know, maybe occasionally there's a slight element of jingoism, but also the sort of maybe knowing some of the things that William the Conqueror will go on to do when he's king, you know, the harrying of the North and all these sort of terrible things that happen after and how he has to kind of quash all these rebellions quite violently. Yeah, maybe there's a sense of sort of looking back with a sense of nostalgia, you know, to what if Harold had won or what if William hadn't been delayed, you know, by the winds and what if Harold Godwinson had faced William first and not Harold Hardrada first and how might things have played out differently. Do you ever dwell on that what if and whether Harold would have been a good king if he'd not died at Hastings? There probably maybe still would have been some further invasion attempts to try and deal with. So it might not have been completely smooth sailing for him. 
even if he had won at Hastings. So, you know, we do get later attempts by the Danish royal family, although often, as I say, William is, seems actually quite effective at being able to deal with any of these problems and potential rebellions. We sort of seem to get the Danish trying to come in in the sort of later 1060s and 70s to sort of support some of the homegrown English rebellions. But sometimes by the time they arrive, William's already like quashed the rebellions. They just sort of burn some stuff and then kind of go home. So I say it might not have been entirely smooth sailing, and maybe there would have been a little bit of tension still with that sort of rival family with the kind of the Earls of Mercia and Northumbria, for Edwin and Morcar, which I suppose is also is an issue for him at Hastings that they actually don't send the northern troops down south. So even though he slightly came to their aid at Stamford Bridge, they don't throw their full weight behind him at Hastings either. Okay, and finally, what would you say is Harold's legacy? Yeah, I suppose even just the fact that we're still talking about him, you know, despite this quite short reign, that, yeah, I say there are obviously all these kind of legends in the medieval period, maybe the kind of stories that he wasn't even really dead. So I say you maybe remember we talked about the uncertainty about his body and kind of what happens there. So there was obviously some maybe elements of wishful thinking that he hadn't really been killed and maybe almost in a slight Arthurian sense of, you know, he might come back and save us one day. <laughs> and yeah, I suppose that there are still attempts maybe for the English to regain power from the Normans. So Harold's own sons try and they do raid the English coast, sort of the southwest from Ireland. But it's, it ultimately doesn't go anywhere. But I suppose at the time that might not have been quite so obvious that that was really such a decisive conquest. And, you know, obviously this big turning point in English history that now we have, you know, Norman rule and the Angevins and closer ties to France. That was Dr. Caitlin Ellis, Associate Professor in Medieval History at Oslo University. We've got plenty more to explore on the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest. And if you're interested in finding out more, just head over to historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to today's Life of the Week. Be sure to join us again next time to learn about another fascinating figure from the past. (laughs) 